Real Estate Addicts Podcast, episode 51, with your hosts, Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And today we are joined by... Matthew Carr, Heritage Law Center. Hey, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, any, not a, any exciting plans for the weekend? This weekend, uh, yeah, hoping for some sun, do some home projects. You know, it's uh, we're kind of stuck to the backyard these days, so that's the uh, the deal. I've been trying to get into gardening. I feel like that's really good for mental health right now. Yeah, definitely don't have a green thumb on my own, but uh, there's uh, you know we we bought a new house a couple years ago, so there's always projects to be done. It's an old one. Were you in the city before and moved to the suburbs? I'm from Beverly originally, um, but lived in Boston for a little over a decade, which is when I I met the uh, HRV guys and uh, then moved to Newburyport about two and a half years ago. Awesome. Yeah, Matt's been uh, very helpful for both Dan and I. He's done estate planning for us, and uh, I feel like we're in a good position where if something were to happen, things would be in the the right place in the right hands. Wait, Matt. Dan, Dan and Ray, you guys have life insurance on each other, right? Like if we do partnership. Yeah. Yep. Do you guys fly on planes together or do you have a policy whereby you two <laughs> can't be on the same airplane? Well, we were on the same plane with you for uh, oh, yeah. Vegas. For Vegas. Yeah. We're, we don't, we don't go that crazy. I think we're okay. That's why we have this plan drawn up. So, so Matt, Matt, you do estate planning. Has, has it been busier with everybody kind of at home? Are they all looking at each other saying like, oh my God, what if I die of COVID and, and I don't have a plan in place? No, it's funny. It actually has been the case that I've been busier than even usual um, in, the, in the pandemic. I don't know if it's so much people really fearing for their lives, given what's going on, or more that you know, people have time to get to their to-do list because estate planning does tend to be something that people procrastinate on. They know they should have it, but it's one of those things we'll get around to it eventually. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't work for you if it's not there before you need it, much like insurance. So that's why uh, it's nice to see people putting it as a priority. Something interesting that I like to equate it to is almost as if what you everybody has car insurance for their car. Everybody generally will get life insurance if they're, especially if they're going to have kids. And a lot of people say, oh, well, why do I need title insurance if I'm buying a house? It's, it's kind of like it's a one-time cost, but if there's ever an issue with the uh, title on the property, you've got that to back you up. Why would you not invest in an estate plan and, and you know, avoid the pitfalls of probate and that sort of thing? Well, that's exactly kind of right. You know, it just, it makes sense in, in that kind of context. I mean, if you have life insurance, that's great. There's going to be money for your loved ones if something were to happen to you. But how is that money going to be managed? How is it going to, you know, what's going to happen if it's going to your kids and they're still young? You know, if you have real estate, is that going to be tied up in the courts before anyone can access and manage it for you? So it's really part and parcel of the holistic plan that your kind of well thought out individual should have in hand with your insurance, your financial plan and your business plan. What happens if you die without a, uh, a will? So if you don't What's have so any bad about plan that? at all, um, the government sets the plan for you. And so there's, there's laws in Massachusetts, they're called the law of intestacy. When someone dies without a plan, they're intestate. That's kind of the phrase they use. And the law says who gets what out of your assets. And uh, sometimes it's pretty straightforward. You know, if you're married, 
and all your children are from that one relationship, typically everything goes to your spouse. You do have to go through the court probate process to make that transfer, but at least it's landing where you probably would want it. Things get a lot more complicated if either you or your spouse have kids from a prior relationship or, you know, if you don't have a spouse, Not then that where things go can get a little more hectic. That's helpful. How long, if you have a will, how long does that process take versus if you have to go through the court system, how long could that take? So it depends. You know, an estate plan usually takes one of two courses. You either have a will-based plan or a trust-based plan. And when we're talking about wills, we're talking about probate because probate is needed for anything that is left in the name of a person who's now deceased. Okay, if I own a house and I own it with my wife, typically if I pass away, she's still the owner. But if we both pass away or if I own it by myself, now there's no one alive whose name is on that deed, so no one can manage it. And so probate is what a will, you know, is instructing how to transfer that title. The will gets filed with the probate court and then they appoint your executor, which we call a personal representative in mass and you can't file probate for at least a month after someone's passed. Once you do file, even if you file at the soonest moment, you know, the courts are notoriously slow. You're dealing with a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy. So usually to get somebody appointed is a couple months at the earliest. During that time, the assets that you need to get access to are locked up. No one can manage them. And then an estate in probate in Massachusetts needs to remain open for at least a year, which is called the creditor claims period, because the state wants to give your creditors an opportunity to present claims. Probate essentially is a forum for those claims to be made. So the other side of the coin is the trust, where you put assets in a trust ahead of time, kind of presetting the transfer of title so that you don't have to go through that probate court process. The trust process, you're saying you're putting stuff in in advance, but can you add stuff if you start accumulating additional assets as you kind of move through your your life? Yeah, your typical trust can be added to at any time. And uh, most people, you know, young investors like yourselves, you want to be in something flexible. The revocable trust is really what we're talking about there. Very flexible. You can make changes to it at any time, put things in, take things out. Your tax treatment doesn't change. And so the trust in itself is a lot like an LLC, which a lot of real estate investors are familiar with. You know, you're still the owner of something, but you're putting it in a different umbrella that can manage it. And then the LLC will often say, what happens if you're not there? The trust does the same thing, but the trust avoids probate where the LLCs don't. So I see a lot of uh, real estate investors putting real estate in LLCs for the liability protection. And then as an umbrella, having those LLCs warehoused in a trust. And that allows their partner or their spouse to access those LLC assets if anything were to happen to the owner. What is it about a trust that allows it to avoid probate? It's all about the transfer of title. So going back to the house example, you know, if my name is the only name on that deed, I'm the only owner of that title. And if I'm no longer here, there's no one else in the world that has the ability to claim that title or manage that property. And so if my will says that that title should be passed to anybody, 
that person needs to go through the probate process to confirm and formalize that will and then make that transfer with the registry of deeds into their own name. With a trust, we're creating kind of um, a neutral body where I'm transferring the title of that property from me to my trust while I'm alive. So the property is in the name of the trust while I'm there. When I pass away, it's still in the name of the trust. So nothing's really changed. And then the trust says, what happens next? So it would name who the trustee is that's going to manage that property and who the beneficiaries are that should receive it. And because I've already preset the title under the umbrella of that trust, my trustee has immediate access and the immediate ability to manage that property privately without any need for court involvement. So it sounds like avoiding probate is an advantage. And, and I would imagine, and kind of going back to where I started with, you know, why would you spend this money up front? What are the costs typically of probate if somebody is trying to figure out or, or the state is trying to figure out who has appropriate title? Like how hairy can that get? I've also often heard that, you know, attorneys can, you know, no offense, attorneys can get paid quite a bit, just kind of managing the process going through it. No offense taken. <laughs> you know, that's, that's definitely true. Um, one of the key differences is a lot of people do estate planning, myself included, on a flat fee basis. So you have a one-time cost, you know exactly what it is, and then you're done. Probate, on the other hand, because you know it depends on what's involved, it depends on the court you're dealing with, and a lot of other factors, people typically will bill either on an hourly rate, which can be unpredictable, or at sometimes even as a percentage of assets going through probate, which can get really expensive. So it all depends on you know, what assets are involved. It also depends on where those assets are. Real estate in particular needs to go through probate where it lies. And so if you have a house in Massachusetts, but you also have a house in Florida or New Hampshire, you got to go through probate in all those different states to get title into one place. Whereas a trust, you can have houses, you know, wherever you want, all in the same trust. And so cost is hard to pin down on probate because of all the factors, but it runs from a couple thousand dollars to, you know, the tens of thousands. That reminds me, I had to go after a tenant not paying his rent who had a guarantor, but the guarantor was in like Kentucky. And so she sort of said, come find me and you would have to pursue it in Kentucky. Right. You know, and, and a lot of, um, you know, you see these big companies um, put in their contracts to find print any any lawsuit needs to be filed where they are. So yeah. like, good luck. Go go to uh, California to file your lawsuit when you're dealing with them in Massachusetts. So, yeah, it's just another hurdle that people need to go through if they don't plan ahead to avoid. Yeah, I mean, we've purchased properties that have had to go through probate and there was there was one property. It took a year. It took a year for it to go through the entire probate process because it was so complicated. And there were people that were deceased and they had to try to track down the next of kin. And it became super, super complicated. And, and there was a minor involved. So the court had to appoint someone to act on behalf of the minor. So it was just, so probate can be very, very long. It could be a very, very long process. Minors can't inherit. So if you leave something to a minor, the court needs to appoint somebody to represent them, then somebody to manage the money. And then usually they they give them the key to the money when they turn 18. Most of us don't expect our 18-year-old children to be ready uh, to take any significant assets. So the trust plans for that. 
And uh, you're right. I'm dealing with a case right now that's been ongoing for a couple of years because the title of the property in Massachusetts is still in the name of a guy who died in 1972. And uh, a couple generations of beneficiaries also have people who have passed away. So we need to go and probate all these estates just to get the clean title. They haven't taken action since 1972. You know, it happens more than you would think when there's like family property, you know, multiple generations living in a property, a grandpa who owned the house died, but we're still living here. Our life goes on. Yeah, the bills might be in his name, but they're still getting paid. So no one's really paying too much attention. And then, oops, someone in the next generation dies. And then, you know, it just gets more and more complicated the longer you put off dealing with it. Wow. That's crazy. Can we can we step back? Real quick, because we kind of had alphabet soup. We talked about a will, a trust. What other documents or important items are part of kind of your estate plan just in general? Yeah, well, your basic estate plan would, would be based around either a will or a trust. If you have a trust, you're also going to have a will, but it's going to be a different type than what you would have without it. And you use typically what's called a pour over will. And that's there as a safety net because things happen. You might forget to put something in your trust or get something new and then pass away before you have that opportunity. So the pour over will is designed to fall through the cracks, add them to your trust so that you're guaranteeing everything is in the right place. Then your power of attorney is a document where you give somebody the ability to manage financial affairs for you if you're alive, but incapacitated in some way. Again, very important for business owners, for real estate investors, because if you're incapacitated, you know, you get hit by that bus or what have you, your spouse or your business partner does not automatically have the ability typically to deal with those things. So then again, we're going into court. We're trying to get a judge to appoint somebody as a conservator to be able to manage those assets. And a healthcare proxy is also typically included, which is the same idea, but who can handle your health treatment if you're not able to make those decisions yourself. So I know you set us up with kind of a trust and that's the way that at least my plan was set up. I guess we have the pour over will, which is good. Yep. We also set up some life insurance and we had the life insurance set up so that the proceeds would go into the trust as well. Can you remind me and help explain to our listeners kind of what that's all about and what the advantages there are? Yeah. So you don't mind me using your plan as an example, I guess. Not at all. Not at all. Everything's on the table here. All right, good. We don't have have to talk specific numbers, but we can talk high level. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I know where all the bodies are buried right now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one thing that this type of planning is great for is avoiding tax, you know, reducing tax where we can. And one of the big taxes that comes into play is the estate tax. Uh, And in Massachusetts, the estate tax works so that if you have a dollar under a million, you pay no estate tax. And if you have a dollar over a million, you're taxed on the entire estate. And that's at a uh, sliding scale of between 0.8 and 16%. The more money you have, the more taxes you pay. And so there are two things that we did to you know, reduce any potential tax on your estate. One is in the trust itself, you can put special provisions that allow a husband and wife to each use this million dollar exemption. So typically, you know, husband and wife only get 1 million. And if they're over that million, everything's taxed. But if your trust is set up with the right provisions, you can shelter a million in the estate of the predeceasing spouse, leaving the other spouse also able to have a million. So in that case, 
you go from having a $2 million taxable estate to two $1 million non-taxable estates. So that's the base plan. On top of that, insurance can be used to further reduce estate taxes. So if you own a life insurance policy in your name, even though you'll never see a dime of that money, it's actually included in what the government taxes when they're considering the size of your estate. So what we do with life insurance and, and make it work for us in this context is we create a special trust that its only job is to own this life insurance policy. It's called an irrevocable life insurance trust, an ILIT. So what we do is we create that trust and we take our life insurance policy and we transfer it to the trust. We give up all rights and control over it. We put it on an island unto itself. So that removes the value of the policy from our taxable estate. So it won't be taxed when we die. And it creates a tax-free pool of liquidity off to the side of our estate. So if I know that I'm going to owe some taxes on my estate, well, instead of having my heirs have to come up with that money to pay, and when we're talking real estate, again, sometimes that results in people having to actually liquidate, sell real estate in order to pay the tax bill. Now we have this nice pool of tax-free money that we can use to pay those taxes. And on top of that, you know, if I owe $100,000 in taxes, which is your average tax on a $2 million estate, I'm going to have to write the government a check for $100,000. But if instead I want to get $100,000 worth of life insurance, I'm never going to pay $100,000 for a $100,000 policy, right? You pay whatever your premiums are which never adds up to the total value. So you're getting a discount on that money, and then you're able to use it to pay the taxes that may exist down the line. That was really helpful. And I know it's all coming back to me. We did this about three years ago when we set it up. Yeah, you know, all equity in real estate is, is part of your taxable estate. And so, you know, in Massachusetts, real estate is expensive, as we know. You know, someone can have a taxable estate with, a $500,000 house and a 500,000 life insurance policy, they could be dead broke on paper otherwise, but still get hit with an estate tax. So this type of planning, you know, really affects more people in Massachusetts than might think, you know, it doesn't mean a million dollars in the bank, it means total net worth. I recently uh, saw the movie Knives Out. And, uh, I just, I was wondering how much of it was fact versus fiction. It was so, a great movie. It was a good movie. It had me, it was a good, good twist to it. I guess the first question is with regards to the Slayer statute. So <laughs> the movie uh, is premised on this notion that if you kill someone, you are no longer eligible to be the beneficiary, even if you were named in their will. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, that is true, actually. True. Otherwise, you know, we'd all be getting uh, large policies on our wives and uh, <laughs> bumping them off, maybe. I, not me, not me. <laughs> okay, Slayer Statue is real. Two, there was a will reading at the beginning of the movie. It was really dramatic. Is that something that you do? Like you bring the whole family into your office and you, you sit there and you read it out loud? I have never done that. I don't know of anyone who actually does that. I think that that's a construct of the movies. Usually... You know, it's whoever is closest to the person has their will. And then we reach out to the beneficiaries individual, individually if they're involved. But uh, the big table before the fireplace reading, I, no, I don't think that happens. Oh, man, I'm going to make that a condition on my will. What about videos? You see that in TV shows and movies. Like, here's my recorded video. Yeah, you know, I've never seen that in real life either. Not that it's a bad 
idea if you want to give like a personal message, but sometimes it backfires. I have heard of situations where people videotape say the signing of a will because they want to prove that that person is of their right mind. And for some reason, someone sees something in the video that looks fishy and that gives rise to even more conspiracy theories than if there was no video at all. Because you're, you know, the bar of evidence is, is pretty high to prove someone wasn't with it when they did their will. But if you're videotaping it, you're just providing more evidence to be weighed, I guess. Last question is, how common is it for people to contest a will? I do get from time to time calls from angry beneficiaries who think that they deserve more than was left to them. And they threaten to challenge a will. Luckily, I, I don't practice in that area myself. And I rarely have, I don't think I've ever actually had someone challenge a will in, in my practice. Hmm. The bar is very high to win in those cases. And the person challenging it has to put up their own money. It's not like you just challenge it and then they get paid by the estate when you're done. And attorneys aren't going to take that on a contingency fee unless you really have a slam dunk case. So it's more rare than in the movies. It does happen now, especially with larger estates where there are real fortunes at stake. Or like high profile celebrities like Michael Jackson's estate and all that. Uh, remember, it was, it was Pamela Anderson, right? She married that oil tycoon and the family tried to contest that, uh, you know, she had undue influence or something. Yeah. So certainly when there are suspect scenarios, you know, someone's creating a will at their last moment of death or they have some cognitive impairment or there's a 20 year old wife with an 80 year old husband, yeah. you know, any of those things is great fodder for a contest. You know, and if there's money at stake, people will will go there. But not in your average lives. As far as the trusts and the estate taxes and stuff like that, is there a point where you should be transferring your assets to your beneficiaries before you pass away to try to avoid some of that tax? Like almost like selling the house to some to like my daughter for a dollar. Would that avoid the state tax or well in some scenarios that can make sense. It is true that when you give away money before your death, you're not going to pay an estate tax on that money. So gifting can be an effective way to reduce your estate tax. When you're dealing with real estate, though, you also have to think about capital gains taxes and how they kind of work in the picture. So the capital gains tax is the tax on any appreciation that you've seen during your ownership of the property. When you're putting someone's name on a deed, you're doing one of those dollar transfers. You're making a gift. If I give somebody a property, you know, or you give somebody anything, you can only give them what you have. And what you have in a property as far as capital gains taxes is a basis that's based on your purchase price and sometimes capital improvements as well. So basically, what are you into the property for? That's where you start. And then appreciation is whatever is above that, the value. And if I give somebody a house, I'm giving them the basis that I have. So if I bought a house for $200,000 and now it's worth $500,000 and I give it to them, they get it with a basis of $200,000. So then if they sell it, they're going to pay taxes on that $300,000 of gain. Whereas if somebody inherits a property, whether it's through a trust, a will, or otherwise, we get what's called a stepped-up basis. And so the person inheriting the property gets it valued at the date of death. 
So in that same scenario, that $500,000 value goes to my heirs and they sell it. They got it at 500,000. There's no gain to be taxed. So it can be a, a weighing of benefits uh, when you're gifting real estate. So I guess it depends or if they plan on selling it or not. Because if it's like an investment, if it's an investment portfolio and they don't plan on selling it, it might make more sense to transfer before. But if you do plan on selling it, it might make sense to wait. Yeah, again, it's pretty scenario specific, but it's usually better to inherit appreciated assets than to be gifted them because of that capital gains exposure. There are other tools where you can create, you know, family limited partnerships and, and other vehicles where you can gift shares of real estate over the years that can kind of hedge both taxes. But that's usually pretty complex planning that most people don't dive into. What's the deal with generation skipping? Isn't there a certain tax advantage to that? Well, generation skipping is, yeah, I, I want to give a property to my grandkids and not have it go to my children. And the government doesn't like that because they want to tax it at my death, at my kid's death, and at my grandkid's death. So when we're <laughs> skipping that generation, we're not letting the government get that tax bite. So they impose additional taxes on that transaction. So oh. you have a certain amount of generation skipping exemption that you can take advantage of if that's part of your plan. And sometimes that comes up. Sometimes that's used as a strategy for overall tax reduction. If, if your goal, it really is to give property to the grandkids. Hmm. I don't know what to Dan's question earlier. I don't know why you'd, if you're planning on selling it, maybe this is a question, Matt, for you is if you're planning on selling it, is there any reason or is there any kind of gotcha in terms of inheriting it through a trust and then selling it. So you get that stepped up basis, but then you can sell it. Is there a period that you have to hold it before they just say, oh, this is kind of like a gift? No, inheriting through a trust is really the easiest scenario possible because upon the death of the person who created the trust, the beneficiaries have immediate access and control. They could sell it the next day. They get the full step up basis. So capital gains taxes are gone. Um, they sell and, you know, unless there's an estate tax due on the, on the total estate, um, you know, the recipient of that doesn't pay any taxes on that transaction. Okay. So there's How, no gotchas there. This is sometimes a sleazy tactic, but certainly one that real estate investors have employed is reading obituaries and trying to find estates that, that may come up for sale. Is it, is it all just public domain? Like how, how would one know where to look. I guess I've never done this. So the obits are, you know, just notifications of death. And so you don't know that the house is in a trust, not in a trust, that they're going through probate. You just know somebody died. And so, yeah, that can be a clue that maybe there's something worth looking at there. Probate filings, though, are where you know there's an estate that's been open in probate. And now they need to deal with those assets. So I see a lot of, I get letters myself where people are offering their services for my probate clients to buy their houses. Yeah, I can see that being a good tactic for certain people. And, and that is all public record. Every probate that's filed is available for viewing at the probate court. There are newspaper notices that need to go out of a probate being opened. So I could see that you know, being more the, the point of contact Trusts are all private. So again, people creating the trusts are allowing their heirs to avoid perhaps unscrupulous uh, <laughs> real estate investors from coming up to them. But um, 
you know, as far as lead generation, it, it could work. Interesting. Yeah, we tried that once, Mark. We did. It's a touchy subject because it's you don't want to send it out while the body's still quote unquote warm. And if you send it out too late, you know, people might have already done something with the assets. So we did we'll get it, that one in Quincy based from that though, right? Remember? We did. We got yep, we got one thing there. Tell us more about that story. I don't know if that one was a probate. The the one with the coal. Yeah, it was definitely probate. Oh, it was? I don't yeah, think it was from aunt, one of our letters though. That, passed, the woman's aunt passed away. Tell me more. How did, how did you know? Was this a family friend? No, no. We bought a probate list. Yeah. And, and we were mailing to it. Must be a sensitive letter you need to send. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't write the copy, but we told the person that it was a probate letter and they kind of wrote the copy and the woman, the woman called and she was the trustee and she was in charge and it was her aunt that passed away who had no children. So she wasn't, it wasn't too emotional for her. It didn't seem so maybe they didn't have a great relationship. <laughs> well, it can also be hit or miss. I mean, some people say, well, I got all this stuff I got to do. I just want to get it done. So it's not like we're coming in to swoop in. It's not like we're saying I'm going to buy your house yeah. for pennies on the dollar. Sure. I mean, there has to be a mutual coincidence of wants. So she knew the house was a wreck. I mean, there was yeah. literally a pile of coal in the basement. Um, yeah, for the right person, that's going to be a huge benefit you know just being in there they're stuck suddenly with having to manage all these assets and liquidate them you know do they want to go through the process of getting a realtor putting on the market when they know it looks like shit maybe so you know it certainly for the right person makes a lot of sense and that sounds like the perfect client to approach to someone who's not too emotionally invested in the situation just kind of saddled with a lot of responsibility yeah, it makes sense. Matt, can you help me with a few other terms that I've seen over the years? You know, when we are driving around looking at properties and then researching the owners, I often see the initials RT, LT. What is that? Living trusts, realty trusts, land trusts. What are all those? Are, are you able to tell us? Because I've never uh, really seen those. Living trusts and revocable trusts are the same things. There are realty trusts as well. Realty trusts have kind of fallen out in the last decade or so. They're kind of more of an old school approach because when you put real estate in a trust, they used to make you record the entire trust with the registry of deeds. So you really had to kind of expose a lot of personal information, which people didn't like. So they created these realty trusts as kind of um, a holding entity where you'd say, I'm putting my real estate in this realty trust, I'm going to record the realty trust with the registry, but the beneficiaries of the realty trust are named on some separate paper that I'm not going to record. And usually the beneficiaries of the realty trust is another revocable trust that has all the family members listed and what they're getting, et cetera. So it was a way to kind of put real estate in a trust without recording all the information. We don't have to do that anymore. We just record what's called the trustee certificate that basically just says the name of the trust and who the trustee is. So function of the realty trust is a little lost. The one benefit though is, is being able to change beneficiaries really easily with the realty trust because you know they're just on a list of paper that you hold. You can pretty much change that paper whenever you want and not have to change anything with the registry of deeds. So I could see it still making sense for some investors who are looking to make you know multiple transfers of a property. One other 
say land trust. I've seen that before. Land trusts. I'm not that familiar with those. They're not very common. And I think that they deal more with like parcels, like development parcels. You would have a land trust established for management of several parcels that might be developed, you know, as one unit, but kind of outside of my day-to-day. And I guess the last thing on my end is just revocable, irrevocable. When do you make that switch or when is one more appropriate than the other? Revocable is where most people want to be, especially when you're, you know, on your younger years or mid years, it's the flexible tool where you're setting up all the bells and whistles to take advantage of all the laws, protect your heirs, but still leaving yourself an out. You know, you have complete control. You can change your mind or change direction at any time. The irrevocable trust is typically used in in two scenarios. One is we use a certain type of irrevocable trust to protect assets for seniors when they're thinking about their long-term care needs. Nursing homes in Massachusetts cost about $15,000 a month. So, you know, that bill gets pretty steep for most people. They want to make sure that they don't lose their shirt if they need that type of care. And so certain assets are put into a trust that they give up a certain amount of control over in order to protect, mainly so that they can qualify for Medicaid to pay nursing home cares and not have to spend down to their last dime. The other way that irrevocable trusts are used are in gifting scenarios. You know, you talked about being able to gift money, remove it from your estate to reduce your tax burden. Well, you can do that through a trust as well, as long as it's irrevocable. If you say, you know, I have a 15-year-old that I want to give, you know, this million-dollar property to, but I, I'm not going to give it to him, you know, no strings attached. He can get it when he turns 30. Then we can get it out of your estate by putting it in this irrevocable trust and still structure how it's going to be managed until you decide he's ready. Well, guys, I think, uh, I think we're getting to be uh, about on time here, but um, this has been really helpful, Matt. Certainly a little I- bit of a different episode. I do have one, one more question. At what point in your life should you be doing this? You know, I see people come to me at all different stages in life. Some people, like I said, definitely put this off for a while. But for me, I wanted to do it as soon as I had my daughter. Because I knew, you know, if anything happened to me and my wife, we want to be the ones deciding how things are managed for her. So I think, you know, at least a basic estate plan makes a ton of sense when you have kids, because not only are you dealing with the money, you're also going to name guardians for them who would take care of them if you're not able to do so yourself and set up the whole structure so that there's not a mess if a tragedy occurred. You know, from there, you know, you can change your trust. You can move things around over the years, kind of develop different strategies it makes sense for everybody to have some sort of plan. Because like I said, if you don't, it's the government deciding what happens and it's usually not the way you would want. Dan's on mute there still. (laughs) My best friend's son calls me Uncle Mark. Does the probate court consider that? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think Ah. think if uh, if you were to pass, it'd be out of luck there. All right, Brad and Zach. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, Matt, this is super helpful. Yeah. This was really good. If, if, guys, uh, if folks wanted to find you, uh, need some help with estate planning and that type of stuff, how, how can they do that? 
Yeah, well, uh, my website is, uh, well, my firm, again, is the Heritage Law Center. And our website is www.maheritagelawcenter.com. My name is Matt Carr. That's with a K, K-A-R-R. And our number is 617-299-6976. So look us up, shoot us an email or a call, and we can uh, start the conversation. You know, we always offer free consultations and, uh, you know, very uh, relaxed kind of approach. We're not salesmen, we're kind of advisors. So we kind of lay out the options and let you decide which way you want to go. Thanks, Matt. Good catching up. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, everybody, for listening, following, subscribing, and sharing, and we'll catch you on the next one. See you, everybody. See you. Bye, guys.